Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles this morning to two places? The book of Acts, chapter 13, and 2 Corinthians. Those two books we're going to reference this morning. When I was a boy, I hated going to the dentist, which is probably like every other boy or girl that has ever lived. Nobody likes going to the dentist. Now, my dentist had an unusual name, and it fit. He was, he was Dr. Steele, as in nerves of steel. And Dr. Steele came to a point in his career where he decided that Novocaine injections were passe. I'll never forget going to his office one day when he said, we've got a new product, it's a spray. It's a spray anesthetic, it's topical. And he said, it works. Well, I must have been his first experiment. Because I'm here to tell you, it didn't work. I was in pain. And everybody around heard like the patient who looked at his dental bill and he said, Doc, you're charging me three times the normal amount. And the dentist said, well, that's true, but you screamed so loud you drove away the other two patients. (laughs) So why is there pain? Why do people suffer? Why do well-meaning, God-loving followers of Christ suffer. C.S. Lewis was asked that question one day. Somebody came up to him and said, Dr. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And his answer was, why not? They're the only ones who can handle it. Well, Paul sure handled a lot of it. We've been looking at his life over the past several weeks. We began by noting the growth of a prominent young rabbinical student trained in Judaism. We saw how angry he was toward Christ, how much he hated the followers of Christ, but we saw his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, how God got a hold of him. We then followed him out to the desert where for three years he was under the private instruction of the Holy Spirit. We watched as he came back to Damascus, then to Jerusalem, And there he preached. But we then followed him over to his hometown of Tarsus, where he stayed for about seven years, up until the time Barnabas invited him to come to Antioch up in Syria. And he began preaching, he began teaching, and from there he went out on his first missionary journey. So we've been tracing his career so far. But if Paul the Apostle were here this morning... I'm sure he would say, but don't forget to tell people about my pain. Indeed, any study in the life of Paul the Apostle demands a serious look at the issue of suffering. Because it was so interwoven into Paul's own experience. There's a lot of good books out on the subject. But there's one little section in a Max Lucado book... Uh, chapter called In the Eye of the Storm. And Lucado writes this. See if you can relate to this. There's a window in your heart 
through which you can see God. Once upon a time, that window was clear. Your view of God was crisp. You could see God as vividly as you could see a gentle valley or a hillside. The glass was clean, the pane unbroken. You knew God. You knew how He worked. You knew what He wanted you to do. No surprises, nothing unexpected. You knew that God had a will, and you continually discovered what it was. But then, suddenly, the window cracked. A pebble broke the window. A pebble of pain. Perhaps that stone struck when you were a child and a parent left home forever. Maybe the rock hit in adolescence when your heart was broken. Maybe you made it into adulthood before the window was cracked. But then the pebble came. Was it a phone call? Was it a letter on your kitchen table? Was it a diagnosis from the doctor? Whatever the pebble's form, the result was the same, a shattered window. The pebble missled into the pain and broke it. The crash echoed down the halls of your heart. Cracks shot out from the point of impact, creating a spider web of fragmented pieces. And suddenly, God was not so easy to see. The view that had been so crisp had changed. You turned to see God, and His figure was distorted. It was hard to see Him through the pain. I have a hunch that that is some of your experience. Uh, You had all the answers at one time. Then as life went on, you had questions and then maybe even some doubts. But here's the central issue. What do you do with it? What do you do with the pain, the problems, the hardship, the trials, the suffering? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't apply some quick fix false theology to it. You can't say, I bind all pain and all suffering in Jesus' name. I claim a trouble-free life, hallelujah. It ain't going to work. It's not biblical. So let's push all of that stuff aside. And let's take a fresh look at this problem through the life of Paul, this great apostle. Now I've called this message, The Seminary of Pain. Nobody'd sign up for that. But too late, we're already in it. And some of us have had advanced degrees in it. We want to look at the curriculum that God gave to Paul in this seminary of pain. We want to look at a couple of midterm exams. And then we want to look at his graduation, his ultimate conclusion as he views life through that lens. So I take you to begin in Acts chapter 13 where we look at, in part, some of the curriculum of Paul's life. And uh, as we come into the classroom, you'll notice there were two subjects that Paul took in this seminary of pain. He took emotional suffering 101 and physical pain 101. Both were his experience throughout his life. We don't have the time to go through his life. We have just a little bit of time to remark on his first missionary journey where we have been sort of hovering the last few weeks. So let's look at Acts chapter 13. I take you to verse 44 where we read on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now if you're a preacher, that's great. Big crowd. However, notice the next word. But. 
Anytime you have good news followed by a negative contraction, it means, uh-oh, things are about to change. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. That's called rejection. Now go down to verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Here it is again. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. That's, again, rejection. Chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. That's called slander. Now look over at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now something to note about this stoning, this physical pain. The stoning of Paul was on the heels of Paul being in the city being the instrument of God to heal somebody, it created such a stir that the people of that city said Paul and Barnabas were gods come down from heaven and they tried to offer sacrifice and worship these two men. No sooner do they try to worship these two men than a few other people come in and stir the crowd the other way and they stone him. Talk about a fickle bunch of folks. And mobs are always that way. Mobs can be very fickle. This way one day, that way the other day. Well, it happened with Jesus. On the Mount of Olives, as he approached Jerusalem, the crowd said, Hosanna! Glory in the highest. A few days later, the same crowd said, Crucify him! Crucify him. That's happening here to Paul and Barnabas. Now, if ever there was a time to question God, whether He loves you or not, whether He's really called you or not, I suppose it's when you're being stoned because you're doing His will. Now, wait a minute, God. I didn't sign up for that. But this is what He gets. Be very easy and tempting to question God, God's love, and God's call. Now, that is the historical record, what we just noticed. But what I'm interested in is how Paul interprets these experiences. Ready for this? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the apostle looking back on these episodes. 2 Corinthians 1. He's looking back from this point, back to some of the events that we just read. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Here's the great, strong Apostle Paul saying, we were at the end of our rope. 
The New Living Translation puts verse 8, We were crushed and completely overwhelmed, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Okay, but don't miss the next verse, because he tells you what he thinks of it. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, yeah, that was bad. But you know what? That caused me to trust God in a way I've never trusted Him before. That's how he's interpreting this. Let's move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 4. But in all things we commend ourselves... By the way, no better sound than hearing Bible pages turn. I want it recorded. In all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, that is beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults or riots, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. In other words, Paul is saying, let me tell you why I'm qualified. Because I suffered. And I suffered a lot. Go on to chapter 11. As you can see, he writes a lot about this. In verse 23, he asks, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Now he gives us his qualifications. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five different occasions he got 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, understand that he's not speaking pharmacologically. He's speaking... It's not like... But you know, you have to delineate this in this day and age. He's speaking probably about the experience we read about in Acts, where he was taken outside the city and stoned with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren. What marked his life? Perils. A string of perils. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Look at the 30th verse. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. What does he mean? He means that this curriculum of pain and suffering that he went through was not wasted time. It's, it's something now so precious to him, he brags about it. He boasts about it. I heard of a woman who went to her pastor. True story. I think the pastor was Dr. Warren Wiersbe. And uh, she was suffering. She had been asking for prayer from the elders for quite some time. And on this particular Sunday the pastor turned and said, I want you to know we've been praying for you. 
And she turned and said, Pastor, thank you, but can I ask, what exactly have you been praying for? And a little taken off guard, he said, well, we prayed that God would give you strength, that God would give you comfort, and that God would heal you, if that's his will, that God would heal you. And she said, Pastor, thank you, but there's one other thing I think you ought to pray. Pray that this time of suffering, that I won't waste it. Interesting request. Lord, help me not to waste this time of suffering. Do you remember what James wrote in that little epistle? If any man ask wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely or liberally and doesn't chide or abrade. Do you know that that is a promise given to us in the context of suffering, trials? Listen to the whole context. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you might be complete and entire, lacking nothing. If anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely. In other words, when we suffer, when we're going through a trial, one of our prayers ought to be, Lord, give me wisdom not to waste any of this precious time. What is it you're trying to teach me? What lessons should I be learning? Lord, don't let this be wasted time. We're coming close to the heart of Paul's perspective on suffering here. Because he just said, I boast in my infirmities. I want you to listen carefully as I read to you the words of the late Malcolm Muggeridge, a brilliant thinker in our times until he went to heaven. He writes this. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. Boy, It's worth listening to that with open ears. Learning the lessons of affliction. So that's the curriculum. Emotional suffering, 101. Physical pain, 101. Now let's look at a couple of midterm exams. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. There are two tests that Paul brings up. One was where God lifted him. The second is where God humbled him. One was exaltation, the second was affliction. Let's look at the first. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, he just said, I'm not going to boast in anything except my sickness, my infirmities. Now he says, look, I don't want to brag or anything, but I have seen a lot of visions and had a lot of revelations in my life. But he continues, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. And he heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, would you agree this is one of those weird, mysterious Bible texts? We read through it and we go, what is that? What is he referring to? Most believe, self-included, that Paul is writing about himself, 
But he writes about himself in the third person, which is a typical rabbinical way of storytelling. To write about yourself, I know a guy, and then to identify himself. Because though he's writing in the third person, he speaks about this experience with the authority that only one who's gone through it could write about. And now look at verse 5. Of such a one, I will boast. In other words, I'm the guy. Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. So let me put it all together. He's saying, I've had a lot of dreams, I've had a lot of visions, I've had a lot of revelations, but there's one that tops them all. I went to heaven. I was caught up to the third heaven. There was a moment in my career where I saw paradise and I heard things. I heard things that are oh, I can't explain. So the question is, when did that happen? Well, we don't know exactly, but he says 14 years before the writing of this epistle, which would place it around 43 A.D., or roughly the time he's in Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. Could it be that when he was stoned outside the city, that during that moment, he says, I was caught up in that unconscious or semi-conscious state. I don't know if I died. I don't know if I had an out-of-body experience. I don't know if I just saw a vision or revelation. But I know this, I heard and I saw something I'll never forget. It could be that that was the time when all of that happened in the midst of that suffering. Look at verse 4. I heard inexpressible words not lawful for anybody to utter. In other words, the experience can't be articulated. How do you describe the indescribable? How do you explain the inexplicable? How do you tell people and have them hear sounds of heaven when they haven't been there? Human language would fail to do it justice. I guess it would be like trying to explain to a four-year-old that he's really going to enjoy his honeymoon. Vance Havner writes this. There are a lot of questions about the Bible. There are a lot of questions the Bible does not answer about the hereafter. And one reason could be illustrated by a boy sitting down to a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. He's going to have a rough time eating that spinach when his eyes are on the cake. Paul got a taste of it. Caught up to the third heaven. Okay, so you ask, the third heaven? I thought there was just one. You mean there's three? Well, you know, the Bible does speak of heaven three different ways. The Bible speaks about the terrestrial heavens or the atmosphere around the earth. Jesus talked about the birds of the heavens. Isaiah mentioned rain comes down from heaven. That's the terrestrial heaven. Second, there is the celestial heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, Psalm 19, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God. He was talking about the sun, moon, and the stars that reveal God's glory. So, terrestrial heaven, atmosphere around the earth, celestial heaven, space, you know, the final frontier. And then the Bible speaks about this, the third heaven, the place where God's glory dwells. You can fly a jet through the atmospheric heavens. Um, Astronauts have been through the celestial heavens, but nobody can get to the third heaven without God's help. I heard of a Russian cosmonaut named German Titoy, an atheist. He flew a space mission, came back to the earth, was debriefing, giving a press conference. And he said very snidely, 
People say there's a God out there. I have traveled around the earth in my spacecraft and I looked around and I saw no God. And somebody elbowed his friend in that meeting and said, if he'd have gotten out of his spacesuit, he would have seen God. <laughs> but imagine Paul's experience. Hearing, seeing, paradise, heaven, God. That kind of an experience is the kind of experience that would make a person, unless it's balanced out by some other experience, incredibly arrogant, prideful. Can you imagine Paul meeting with some modern dignitaries? And here's the conversation. One guy would say, well, you know, last week when I was at the White House talking to the president, how do you top that? Well, it's topped by the guy who says, well, a month ago I was at the Vatican and the Pope and I had a cup of espresso. How do you top that? Well, the third guy says, I remember when I was walking on the moon on my space adventure. How do you top that? Well, there's Paul. And Paul said, you know, I remember the day I went to heaven and saw God. You can't top that experience. It's the kind of experience that's so singular that could make anybody insufferably proud. So, there was a second examination. The test of affliction, verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Did you get that? The second test prevented the failure in the first test, which would have been pride. Brothers and sisters, God knows how to balance out our lives. God knows how to balance paradise with pain, blessings with burdens. Now, why is it that when God gives blessings, even blessings we don't deserve, that we don't seem to have a problem with that? We, we don't ever turn to God and say, Oh, God, take this back. It's too big of a blessing. I don't deserve it. You and I both know that. Please, take it back. And yet... When burdens come, when suffering comes, that's when we start questioning God. That's when the window breaks. We don't see Him clearly anymore. We start questioning the reality of God and our faith. Now, you remember what Job said to his wife who gave him that good and godly counsel when he was suffering. She said, hey, just curse God and die. Remember what he said? He said to her, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Here's Paul willing to accept good and adversity. Sure, God gives blessings, but God gives burdens. Not to break your back, but to bend your knee, lest he be puffed up. Now, Paul mentions in verse 7, a thorn in the flesh. What is that? I'll let you in on a secret. Nobody knows. He doesn't say exactly. So there have been a lot of guesses as to what this thorn in the flesh that Paul writes about was. Here's a few guesses. Some have said it was a constant temptation. Others have said it was epilepsy. Some think migraines. Others say recurrent malaria. And a few point to his speech disability as his thorn in the flesh. 
One Scottish commentator even said Paul's thorn in the flesh was his wife. I'd like to know how that commentator's home life was. Well, the word that Paul uses, thorn, is a Greek word, scallops. Scallops. It is not a thorn like on a rose bush. It's not a sliver of wood like on a plank that you get in your finger. The word scallops or thorn translated here means a sharp stake. A sharp stake. It was usually used for torture or to impale somebody on. So Paul is saying, something was given to me, this huge impaling stake in the flesh. So probably it was some severe, nagging, physical affliction. Now I'll give you my opinion. My opinion, it was somehow related to his eyes, maybe an eye disease, maybe macular degeneration, or maybe because of an injury, this sustained ongoing eye problem. This is why I think that. When he writes to the Galatians, at the end of his letter, he says, you see what large letters I have written to you. Now, you know, when Paul wrote letters, he didn't sit down with his computer or his pencil and pad, he dictated letters. He had a secretary, he had an amanuensis. So he would say things and the scribe would write them down. But toward the end of his letter, Paul would often write a closing couple of sentences or in the case of Galatians, a paragraph. And he does that. But he, he says, I had to use large letters in my own hand. Now, why is that? Well, in the same book of Galatians, Paul says... You know that because of a physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you. Something happened to me that caused me to stay in Galatia for a while, and you heard the gospel through my life. And, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You put all that together, I sort of see it that what happened in the area of Galatia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, where he got stoned, he suffered from that point on this recurrent eye problem. He had bad vision, he had to write large letters, people felt, felt sympathetic and said, boy, I'd give you my own eyes if I could. But it was a hindrance to Paul. Something else very interesting you can't miss. Notice what it says, a thorn was, what does it say? Given. Given to me. In the original language, it's in a tense called the aorist passive imperative. Which means in this context, it was God that gave this to me. It was God that gave this to me. God is saying, Paul, I have a gift for you. An affliction. That's how Paul describes it. It was given to me by God. Now, do you remember Job in the Old Testament? This is very similar. God permitted Satan to attack Job for his sovereign purposes for a while, up to a point. Just as here, God permitted a messenger of Satan to buffet. You could translate that to punch Paul. And also, like Job, both God and the devil are at work in the same person. The devil trying to use this to overturn Paul's faith. God using this certainly to strengthen Paul's faith. That's interesting to me. You know, in, in chemistry, you can take two substances that normally are harmful and poisonous, but the right combination makes them beneficial. 
So you take sodium and you take chlorine, considered poisons. You put them together in the right combination. You have sodium chloride, table salt. It's very, very, could be, not too much, beneficial. At least it tastes good. So it's one of those Romans 8.28 things, isn't it? God causes all things to work together. He is in control of the combination. Okay, so what does Paul do in the midst of this? Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might, that it might depart from me. Can you hear him? Oh God, please take this thorn in the flesh away. That's what we all do. Nothing wrong with that. Here's the thinking. Lord, I want to serve you, but I can't serve you with this nagging distraction of the thorn in the flesh. Isn't that how we pray? Lord, I'd love to serve you. If only my body were stronger, then I would. Lord, I'd love to serve you. If only that annoying person at work weren't around. Lord, I'd love to serve you. If only my creep husband wouldn't do what he's doing. Lord, I'd love to serve you if only my wife were more spiritual. In other words, if my situation changed, life were better, then I'd serve the Lord. You want to hear God's answer? It's not what He expected. Verse 9, And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. I don't think Paul wanted to hear that as an answer to you. I think when three times he said, God, take it away, take it away, take it away, he wanted God to at some point go, okay, yes, I'll remove it. God said, no. Oh, by the way, that's an answer. We say, I wish God would answer my prayer. How about no? That's an answer. It's not the one we want. It's the one he got. No, I won't remove it because my grace my resources, my favor and goodness based upon my person. That's enough. That's all you need. Okay, so that's his curriculum. That's the examinations. Now let's see his graduation from this seminary of pain. There are two therefores in verse 9 and 10 which give us his conclusion of the matter. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast or brag in my infirmities, my sicknesses, my maladies, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities. But you've got to read that again, and so do I. It just doesn't make sense. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We go, Paul, what are you, a masochist? Are you mentally imbalanced? Do you love pain? No, this is what he's saying. The thorn in the flesh revealed my weakness. My weakness caused me to lean harder And depend more. I now realize I can't make it through a day, let alone a week, month, or a year, unless God takes me through it. Wow. Here's my question to you this morning. Are you willing, are you willing to see your pain as a gift from God if it makes you depend on Him more? Are you willing to embrace Periods of suffering. Maybe you're in now, or maybe you were in in the past, because it drives you to God. Are you willing to take the gift and go, thank you, 
I remember growing up getting Christmas presents. Some I loved, some I did not. Loved toys, didn't like underwear or socks or gloves. But I got them. I got them both. Both were gifts. Both were, well, the second were certainly more necessary than the first. I got them both. You might say this is Paul's diploma of weakness, his cap and gown of humility. And he says, I boast in this. Well, we're out of time, and I just want to press this home by leaving you with three quick points to remember in summing this up. Number one, God knows how to offset blessings with burdens. And understand, that's from a heart of a compassionate, loving God. He knows how to balance paradise with pain. Both are from Him. Number two, there is something far worse than physical sickness. I know for Americans it's hard for us to grasp. There is? What could that be? Here it is. Spiritual sickness. Pride. Arrogance. Far worse in God's heart than any physical ailment. Number three, afflictions should never stop a Christian from serving. I never forget a young man we had around this fellowship some years ago who was confined to a wheelchair. His name was Scott. Scott couldn't even speak a sentence. He had to communicate by pointing to letters with his nose on an alphabet board. I'll never forget when one day, through that long, tedious process of pointing his nose at different characters, he said that he wanted to volunteer to be one of our ushers. Now, honestly, my first reaction was, oh, no, it's not going to work. And then another thought immediately caught me. I thought, why not? You know, here's a guy with a physical infirmity wanting to volunteer to do God's work, and he'll do it when there are able-bodied people who won't do it. Let's let him. Let's encourage him to do it. In other words, his disease wasn't going to stop him from serving the Lord. He was going to do it, and he did it. It's interesting to me how pearls are formed. You know, a pearl is a result of an injury, a pain. What happens is a foreign body, like a grain of sand, works its way into an oyster and irritates that organism. The response of the oyster to the irritation is to send out this substance called nacre, N-A-C-R-E. And it, it, it is a fluid that surrounds the irritant, the sand. And then another layer, and then another layer, and another layer. And over time, that response to pain is called a pearl. Isn't that interesting? Interesting that the very thing that causes pain to the oyster causes it to be more valuable. I don't see a whole lot of difference with us. And if we could only learn to view the curriculum in this seminary of pain a little bit differently and say to God, not if only, but thank you, thank you, thank you for the lessons that I don't want to waste in this curriculum. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, some of us have been in or are in or will be in this school of suffering. Some have for many years, who in spite of it continue to serve you. How thankful we are 
And thank you, Lord, for the lessons that you're insistent that we learn. Sometimes we learn the lessons by just pure, ecstatic joy that comes from the incredible, obvious blessings you give. But then you bring those hidden treasures, those pearls of experience that come through pain. Lord, help us to embrace those times. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.